Okay, welcome to episode five of Reign of Blood, the true story of the epic clash between the Spanish and Aztec empires. What you're about to hear is part two of our historical survey of Spain and the Iberian Peninsula. In the last episode, part one, we provided a general review of Spanish history up to the reign of Queen Isabella of Castile and King Ferdinand of Aragon. And we spent the bulk of that episode on the Reconquista itself, which is the origin story of the modern Iberian nations of Spain and Portugal, and covers the nearly 800 years of Muslim civilization in Europe. In part two, we're going to pick up the story as the kingdoms of Castile and Aragon look to build on their newfound wealth and prestige following the conclusion of the Reconquista. We'll go over in great detail how an Italian sailor convinced the Queen of Castile to fund his get-rich-quick scheme, and how the failure of that venture triggered the creation of the Spanish Empire in the New World and set the stage for their clash with the Aztecs. Lastly, we'll paint a picture of what the new Spanish Caribbean colonies look like on the ground when the son of a minor noble family from an unimportant province in western Castile arrives in the islands to seek his fortune. As always, we encourage you to follow along at intellectualbrutality.com where we'll have images and maps in the blog post for this episode. And don't forget to like, subscribe, or follow on your podcast platform of choice. And now, please enjoy Reign of Blood, Episode 5, The Spanish Opening, Part 2. Fourteen ninety two was about as consequential a year as any in history, certainly for Spain and for the Americas and for what today we call Western civilization. While all of those consequences are crystal clear to us now, even at the time it was pretty obvious to the people that monumental shifts were underway, even if they couldn't fully grasp how far reaching they would ultimately be. Think about this, within the confines of one calendar year, we have the effective close of one era of Spanish and Western history, and the opening of another. The era that came to a close, of course, was the Reconquista, which as we covered in detail in episode 4, ended on January 2nd, 1492. That was the day the armies of Queen Isabella of Castile and King Ferdinand of Aragon occupied the city of Granada and accepted the surrender of the last emir of Al-Andalus. And the era that opens later that year is the one that will see Spain become the largest, wealthiest, most powerful civilization in history, even surpassing the Romans. But the feats that the two Spanish kingdoms, and to a nearly equal degree the Portuguese kingdom, are about to achieve in the coming decades are so profound and so far-reaching that historians see this as nothing less than the beginning of the modern world. In fact, that's now typically how they refer to this period, calling it the early modern era. And they call it that because it's from this point in time that we can see the medieval world of small kingdoms and feudalism and mercantilism ending, and the march to the modern world of European-slash-Western dominance and globalization beginning. One question historians love to pose is, why Spain? Why Western Europe? 
It may seem obvious now, but if you looked around at all the great civilizations in 1492, they would not have been the most obvious choice to project their power globally in the coming decades. We covered many of those reasons in episode 4, and they boil down to the fact that Spain was very much a medieval society and still largely divided. The Ottomans, on the other hand, were well on their way to building a glorious empire of their own, and they were far more united, and its military much more formidable. If Vegas existed back then, then it's likely they would have picked the Ottomans as the favorites to come to dominate the world in the years to follow 1492. The Venetians were another power you might have picked to flex their muscle around the globe. They had a much better navy than Castile and Aragon in 1492, though that gap would close fast. And they already had vast trade networks going back centuries that reached deep into Asia. Speaking of Asia, Ming China was also well positioned to begin expanding globally. Why not them? They were wealthier and more technologically advanced than Europe. And in fact, earlier in the 1400s, the Ming emperor built a vast armada of thousands of ships, including massive treasure ships, three and four times the size of the ships Columbus would take across the Atlantic, and sent a fleet of these ships under Admiral Yung He on multiple voyages into the Indian Ocean to project Chinese power among the South Asian and African kingdoms there. The Pacific is a much larger ocean than the Atlantic, so I'm not suggesting the Chinese could have easily made it over to the Americas. But they definitely had the technological capacity to flex their power deep into the Pacific and over to Europe if they chose to. But perhaps they just didn't have the political will or the economic imperative that the European nations had. But for a multitude of reasons, some of which we're going to get into now, it would be the ascendant Iberian kingdoms that would be the first to venture out and connect the world. If there's a thesis to this episode, it's this. The experiences of the Reconquista specifically prepared Castile and Aragon for the period of expansion and empire building that was to come. And we're going to dive deep into those experiences now. The nearly 800 years of constant warfare in Al-Andalus facilitated the development of a new class of warriors that were truly modern. This wasn't a formal class distinction exactly. Spanish armies would continue to consist of knights and officers from the nobility and rank and file from the commoner classes, just like European armies had for centuries. And if you were just evaluating them based on how they dressed and armed themselves, they would look much more medieval than modern. But in terms of their effectiveness and their skill and the way war would become their vocation, this new breed of soldier from Castile and Aragon fought like early modern armies do. These weren't clumsy masses of unskilled men in chainmail charging at the enemy hoping to overwhelm them. These conquistadors were the navy seals of their day. They were highly trained and masters of the latest weapons and tactics available at the time. They were experienced using swords and spears and pikes and crossbows, but they also had tons of experience incorporating early firearms and cannons of various types into their tactics. They were equally deadly at sea, on horseback, or on foot. They were effective sailors, many of them, and they were adept at living off the land, 
luring enemies to favorable ground, creating fortified defenses, taking cities by siege, and employing complex tactical maneuvers against much larger forces. They could conduct guerrilla warfare operations or execute hit-and-run cavalry tactics, or they could fight in organized formations in open battle. Many became mercenaries and sold their services to princes and warlords all across Europe. Generation after generation of this kind of training and refining the art and science of war among a bulk of the citizenry would prove immeasurably valuable in the coming confrontation with the Aztecs. As the military capabilities and successes of the Catholic monarchs grew during the latter phase of the Reconquista, so did their influence across Europe, and this included their influence on the affairs of the Catholic Church itself. As we discussed in the last episode, the Reconquista wasn't conceived originally as a coordinated crusade to take Spain back for Christendom, and for most of its duration it hardly resembled that. But that started to change after about 1100, and by the time Isabella and Ferdinand married in 1469, the religious motivations of the Reconquista were front and center. And this wasn't just rhetorical or part of the narrative that they told themselves. This was structural. Priests and other church officials were integrated into virtually every institution, including the military, the courts, and the ministries that managed foreign policy. This seamless integration of church and state would find its ultimate and most ruthless expression in the Spanish Inquisition, a dual church-state office that oversaw the forced expulsion, conversion, and execution of the hundreds of thousands of Muslims and Jews that lived in their newly conquered or reconquered lands. Not only had the church begun to influence affairs in Castile and Aragon at this time, Castilian and Aragonese officials and institutions had begun to influence the church in Rome. Alphonse de Borja, of the wealthy Borgia family from Valencia, then part of Aragon, became the first Spanish pope when he ascended the throne of St. Peter as Calixtus III in 1455. His nephew, Rodrigo de Borja, became Pope Alexander VI in 1492. And for the next 100 years, the affairs and ambitions of the monarchs in Spain and the popes in Rome would be inextricably intertwined. This included both affairs in Europe and, increasingly, around the world. For the first time since the Roman Empire, Hispania and Italy were united into one civilization. Only this time, the real power resided in Hispania. This integration of church with state that happened during the Reconquista did one other thing that's important to our story. It legitimized and glorified the lust for conquest, so long as that conquest was at least in part designed to bring the word of Christ to more people. And this allowed the pursuit of conquest to become ingrained into the very culture of the Iberian Peninsula. To put it another way, the industry and the economy and the culture of Castile, Aragon, and Portugal had been war and conquest for over eight centuries. And for the last few centuries at least, those conquests were infused with religious fervor. Now masters of the Iberian Peninsula and celebrated across Christendom for expelling Islam from the continent, Isabella and Ferdinand were eager to expand the territory controlled by the united house of Trastamara, 
and they made key alliances and dynastic mergers with other royal families across Europe via their children. Lesser nobles from these two ostensibly united kingdoms looked for ways to grow their own wealth and prestige by flexing outside of Spain as well. And members of that warrior class we talked about looked to join the armies of those nobles to level up and attain the spoils of war like land and titles and gold that came with the conquest of new territory. But where, oh where, to pursue those new conquests? Well, with their borders secure, their Muslim enemies expelled, their influence in the Catholic Church and their prestige growing across Europe, the united crowns of Castile and Aragon represent the ascendant political power of the Western world as the dawn of the colonial era and the Age of Empires approaches. The Spanish stumbled into their empire almost by accident. Queen Isabella agreed to back Columbus's voyage in 1492 because of the promise of wealth from the lucrative spice trade. Columbus was from Genoa in Italy, of course, and he became a sailor as a young boy, possibly as young as 10, which was not uncommon. He started out working the ships of wealthy Genoese trading families, and as an adult, he would ultimately settle in Portugal, which was a hub of exploration at the time. Portugal's participation in the Reconquista largely ended with the final conquest of the Algarve in the extreme south of Portugal in 1249, even though land and other disputes with neighboring Castile would ensue for a while. But with no Muslim kingdoms left on their borders, Portugal would have to learn to leverage their geographic advantage on the Atlantic coast if they wanted to expand. Lisbon and Porto and other ports became hubs of exploration and trade decades before Spain would turn their attention to the sea. Portuguese sailors were making regular voyages south down the African coastline. In the 1430s, they settled the Azores in the middle of the Atlantic. And in 1488, Bartolomeu Diaz, that's Diaz with an S, as in the Portuguese spelling, rounded the southern tip of Africa for the first time, and enter the Indian Ocean from the south, the first European to do so. So it's no accident that this is where Columbus ended up. He had attained some modest wealth and was able to marry a Portuguese noblewoman, and it was here in Portugal that he devised his plan to sail west. He approached the Portuguese king first to give him a chance to sponsor, but the Portuguese king passed. Columbus then worked his way into the Castilian court of Queen Isabella, who was eventually convinced to fund him. And so, besides Columbus and a handful of his close associates, the ships and crews for the voyages came mostly from Castile. Most of you probably know this already, but it deserves reiterating. Columbus did not face opposition from people who thought the world was flat. I don't know why we're taught that as kids, but there's no truth in it whatsoever. The YouTube videos your buddy from high school shared on Facebook notwithstanding, humanity has understood that the earth is spherical since the time of the ancient Greeks at least. Earlier, in fact, most likely, but the Greeks get credit for articulating and demonstrating this mathematically. But long before them, even, sailors and travelers the world over had an appreciation for the globe Earth because of how they had to navigate, how they could see the arc of the sun and the stars across the sky change depending on latitude, and how ships would disappear bottom to top over the horizon. 
So the whole flat earth, round earth debate wasn't really a thing like many of us were taught. There had, however, long been debate among scientists and mathematicians over the exact circumference of the earth. This too had been demonstrated in ancient times, but it was never really tested. And over time, different scientists came up with different calculations. Columbus subscribed to a school of thought that believed the distance around the world was much shorter than it really is, which is probably why he was so certain he can get to Asia with the technology available to him and the limits of supply and endurance of that technology. It's also why Columbus, after arriving in the Caribbean, was so certain that the Asian mainland was somewhere out there just a little further west. He died believing that, in fact. It took another Italian, Amerigo Vespucci, to figure out that no, in fact, the landmass that explorers kept bumping into to the west, north, and south of the Caribbean wasn't Asia. It was an entirely new continent. Two, in fact. And no one in the old world from Portugal to China knew it existed. That's why today we call this landmass North and South America and not North and South Colombia. That's not without controversy, but let's just all be thankful that that German mapmaker who first put a name on these two continents settled on America in his honor and not Vespuccia. Columbus's delusions and frustrations aside, it soon became clear to the Spanish that these islands and coastlines that he and other explorers were discovering, air quotes, were not part of Asia, let alone India. They weren't sure how far they were from Asia exactly, or what lay in store beyond the landmasses they kept bumping into, but they accepted that it wasn't Asia, and so the dream of getting rich quick by just sailing west and loading ships up with Indian spices to sell at 1,000% markup back in Europe was over. From this point, they had two options. Give up and return to Europe, or keep exploring this new world and figure out how to extract wealth from the lands they now possessed some other way. They didn't find spices, at least not a spice industry like they expected. And there wasn't much gold, at least not in the islands they encountered so far. But these islands did have good fertile soil and plenty of water and a climate ideal for other hot commodities like sugar, which turned out to be very lucrative once they realized they could import slaves from Africa to work the sugar fields for free. A lot of air quotes in that last sentence, by the way. The Spanish also watched as Portuguese-funded expeditions had discovered a large landmass of their own to the south in modern-day Brazil, and their own colonial project there would soon be underway. And so, as a kind of plan B, you have an economic model taking shape in the Caribbean that, among other things, is attractive to what we might call an emerging middle class all across Castile and Aragon particularly the minor nobles and second sons and others for whom there was little chance of attaining wealth or land or prestige at home, especially since the Reconquista was over. These middle-class Spaniards, for lack of a better term, had access to seed money that enabled them to make their way over to the New World, acquire some land and some slaves maybe, and start growing and exporting sugar and other cash crops back to Europe. 
you also have hundreds and perhaps thousands of adventurers and remnants of the Reconquista's mercenary class going to the New World as soldiers for a share of the spoils of conquests and discoveries, and later many came as indentured servants as well. The important point here is that not long after 1500, we see a clear transition from the early part of the discovery phase of the New World into what we can call the colonial phase. And with that transition, you start to get a steady flow of not just soldiers and explorers, but also these more industrial types arriving in the Caribbean. Not to mention all the bureaucrats, clergy members, and administrators coming to ensure the crown and the church got their cuts. Ostensibly, at least, the unified crown of Castile and Aragon oversees the colonial project by way of the Casa de Contratación, or House of Trade. This was the ministry, for lack of a better term, set up in 1503 by Queen Isabella's chaplain, Bishop Fonseca. But the logistics of time and distance necessitated a tremendous degree of operational and even cultural flexibility on the ground in the Caribbean. This meant qualities like initiative and ambition were rewarded, or at least condoned. And this in turn fueled the rapid expansion of conquest, It also created a climate of distrust, of competing loyalties, and of outright conflict between intersecting interests that are all informed by the old rivalries from the mother country. Disputes between the crown and the nobility on the one hand, and the nobles from Castile on the ground in the New World on the other, were particularly bitter. There's also an emerging rift between those that arrived as nobles and those who became noble by virtue of their conquests in the New World. And you also have the church, which wasn't of much use and had little to do in the early exploration and conquest phase, now asserting their rights and their privileges during the colonial phase, and they want to flex their muscle as well. Add to this the ordinary guys doing the conquering and the building of the cities and the setting up of the businesses and industry of the plantation economy and all the politics and rivalries of the institutions that came with it, and you can see how messy things could get and how difficult it could be to maintain order. Columbus, for example, had originally secured for himself and his heirs the right to rule as the crown's representatives over any territory that became colonized as a result of his expeditions. But he and his brothers and his sons proved so wildly unpopular and incompetent that no one in Spain or in the New World took them seriously after about 1500. The crown also didn't anticipate that Columbus would discover a pair of entirely new continents. And so once they realized what they had, there was no way they were going to leave that to an Italian sailor to rule over. Savvy nobles who made their way to the New World quickly maneuvered into powerful administrative positions and effectively ostracized the now useless Columbus family from the power centers of the growing colonial empire. The viceroy in name only on the eve of Cortez's expedition to Mexico, Diego Columbus, had in fact returned to Spain to plead with the crown to honor his hereditary claim and restore his rule he would not find sympathetic ears at court. To add to this instability, a new king, born in Belgium and heir to the Austrian Habsburg Empire as well as Castile and Aragon, ascended to the throne in 1516 and for the first time 
united Castile and Aragon under the complete rule of one single monarch. This was always the plan when Ferdinand and Isabella married, but how it would play out now that it was happening was anyone's guess. Unlike his grandmother, Queen Isabella, who made exploration and expansion across the Atlantic a top priority, King Carlos I and his court were preoccupied with the political maneuvering and machinations needed to dominate Europe and secure his election as Holy Roman Emperor, which he was in line for by way of his Habsburg inheritance. Affairs in the colonies, therefore, took a bit of a back seat as a result, and this created a power vacuum in the Indies with no clear administrative structure, or at least not one with any teeth. Priests, traders, landholding cash crop farmers and officials acting on behalf of various royal offices, and of themselves, are all rushing to the Caribbean to fill this vacuum, each vying for influence and control over the nascent institutions of administration. The Royal Council of the Indies, under the thumb of Bishop Fonseca, would eventually be formed to oversee Spain's colonies from Santo Domingo, but that's still a few years off. For the time being, the power lies with whoever musters up the resources and the men to lead the next expedition of conquest. It is in the middle of this complicated mess that the son of a minor noble family from a tiny town in an insignificant province of the Kingdom of Castile finds himself in the first decade of the 1500s. Hernán Cortés de Monroy y Pizarro Altamirano was born in 1485 in the town of Medellín in Extremadura. He trained to become a lawyer and worked as the equivalent of a notary for a time, but being from a relatively impoverished noble family from an unimportant area, prospects for advancement, let alone adventure or great wealth and gain, were non-existent for someone like him. But as fate would have it, Cortés had a distant uncle, Nicolás de Ovando, who had risen to be an influential member of the court of Queen Isabella, and he was appointed governor of the Indies and sent to the Caribbean by the queen in 1501. Cortez's parents, probably as desperate as Cortez himself for him to make something of his life, made arrangements with Ovando to take young Hernán under his wing, and in 1504, just shy of his 20th birthday, Cortez packed up and made his way to Hispaniola, where Uncle Nicolás granted him land and an entry-level position in his administration. While working for his uncle, he met a man by the name of Diego Velázquez de Cuellar, who had come over on Columbus's second expedition back in 1493 and had maneuvered his way into the Columbus brothers' good graces. As the Columbus family fell out of favor, Velázquez managed to retain his privileged position under the new crown-appointed governors, first Francisco de Bobadilla and then Nicolás Ovando. Thanks to lucrative appointments by Ovando, Velázquez de Cuellar became very wealthy, and when the time came to conquer and colonize Cuba in 1511, he was selected to lead the expedition. Having gotten to know Cortés extensively, Velázquez picked him as one of his lieutenants for the expedition, and Cortés distinguished himself in battle against the Taíno natives in Cuba, and he ingratiated himself with Velázquez, who after completing the conquest of Cuba, secured the governorship over the whole island. This made Velázquez the most powerful man in the New World, effectively, despite protests by the Columbus clan back in Hispaniola. 
Cortes received huge tracts of land from Velasquez in Cuba as booty, and he set up a large plantation almost immediately. He soon married Catalina Suarez, a daughter from a well-connected family that was kin to Velasquez de Cuellar in some way. Some sources say that Catalina was the sister of Diego Velasquez's wife, which would have made Velasquez and Cortes extended family upon his marriage. What's clear is that Cortes had established himself as a man of prominence and importance, and was by this time among the leading nobles in Cuba. And so the fact that he married into a family with some links of kinship to Diego Velasquez wasn't surprising. The circle of nobles was still quite small after all, and so the good society, as it were, would have been a very finite group of people. Soon after he meets Catalina, though, Cortez's relationship with Velázquez becomes strained. There's a story that describes a scandal involving Cortez and one of Catalina's sisters during their courtship that seems to have upset Velázquez somehow. Though, again, the details aren't clear and it's not something that appears across all the sources, so it's hard to corroborate. But if they were indeed extended family, then this story would help explain the tension between them. There's another story, this one by Bernal Díaz del Castillo, a conquistador who wrote the definitive first-person account of Cortés's coming invasion of Mexico, which we'll explore in much more detail in a sidebar episode coming up soon. Díaz says that their relationship ruptured when Cortés joined a group of nobles who had grown unhappy with the way Velázquez was running things, and specifically his policies regarding Indian labor. Cortés apparently was chosen to present the group's grievances to Velázquez and Velasquez was not too appreciative of his former loyal lieutenant taking on this role. Whatever the true cause, what is clear is that Cortez falls out of Velasquez de Cuellar's inner circle for a time. But whatever the source of the drama was, it wasn't so serious that it stopped him from accumulating wealth from his Cuban plantations and his mines, resulting in tremendous influence across the island. Nor does it keep him from attaining plush administrative appointments like the mayor of the city of Santiago. So he may not have been one of Velasquez's closest lieutenants anymore, but he had proven his competence in battle and in administration. And despite whatever strain existed, the two men knew they needed each other. Cortez needed Velasquez more, of course, as any route to advancement went through him. But Velasquez needed good, loyal, proven leaders for the long-term plans he had in store as well. And Cortez was as talented as anyone in this regard. And he commanded as much respect as anyone else. Cuba quickly became a hive of colonial activity and settlement under Velasquez de Cuellar. With its multiple exceptional deep-water ports, its abundant natural resources, and its proximity to the newly discovered islands and other land masses to the south, north, and west, it became a jumping-off point for further exploration of the region. Santo Domingo, meanwhile, over on the island of Hispaniola further east, remained the political and administrative center, but the place to be was Cuba. Explorers departing from Cuba soon began mapping the coasts of South and Central America, including the eastern coast of the Yucatan Peninsula, giving Velázquez a teaser of what might be out there and whetting his appetite for more conquests and colonies. With Bishop Fonseca in the Casa de Contratación 4,000 miles away in Cádiz, Velázquez de Cuellar appointed himself the effective CEO of Spanish expansion. He soon began ordering more ambitious and coordinated voyages with armed units designed to not just explore and to map, 
but to land and make contact with any indigenous people. They were also to scout for areas that could be home to future colonial city centers. The strategy was to probe multiple locations with smaller expeditions and then send a larger force to establish a colony once favorable conditions were found, and the entire process was firmly under his control. This meant anyone wishing to lead an expedition had to go through Velasquez de Cuellar, and competition for these captaincies was fierce. The first colonies established on the mainland were not in Mexico, but further south, near the modern-day border between Colombia and Panama, right where the Isthmus of Panama attaches to the South American continent, in fact. The most successful of these early colonies was Santa Maria la Antigua, established by Vasco Núñez del Balboa in 1510. Balboa is perhaps most famous for becoming the first European to reach the Pacific Ocean when he crossed the Isthmus overland in 1513. His colony of Santa Maria la Antigua would last the longest until about 1524, but it collapsed when local natives sacked it and forced its inhabitants to flee. The other Darien colonies would ultimately fail as well and were abandoned soon after they were established, but two important things happened during this period after 1510 that will be crucial to the upcoming invasion of Mexico. First, after establishing the colonies at Darien, you start to see semi-regular travel between Cuba and Central America to transport people and supplies and other things back and forth. One of these transport voyages resulted in a major wrinkle in the story of the conquest that we'll get into much deeper in the next episode. Second, these colonies, as small as they were, allowed them to engage in sustained meetings with indigenous people on the mainland for the first time. There weren't any major population centers near Darien, certainly not large cities. But the people there would have had direct contact with Mayan groups to the north, and it's likely they would have had some knowledge of the Aztecs, even if just in abstract terms. We don't know for sure if Aztec merchants or scouts made it that far south by 1510, but it's very possible. Likely even, given what we know about Aztec trade and military expansion and the Pochteca merchants we learned about in episode 3. But regardless, we know stories, or at least rumors, of the Aztecs and Mayans did reach Central America because it was at this time that the Spanish began hearing from the locals about great cities and powerful kings far to the north and the west. They wouldn't have had much detail beyond that, but you better believe the Spanish were sufficiently motivated to find out for themselves if these great kings and cities existed. We can be fairly confident that all of the potential captains of upcoming expeditions, including Cortes himself, were well aware of these rumors as well. By most accounts, Cortes was smart, but not wise. He was also endlessly plotting and calculating, but not very careful as the small but revealing incident with Velasquez's family shows. He doesn't seem to have been particularly popular amongst his peers within the Spanish nobility in the New World, and there's suggestion in the sources that he was considered uncouth, a poseur essentially who advanced less by his merits or even by his family's prestige, of which he had very little, than by Velasquez's patronage. And Velasquez's patronage was designed in large part to marginalize those other nobles and keep them from getting too powerful. 
It soon became clear to the Spanish that the area we now call the Yucatan Peninsula was different, different than the rest of the islands that they had found up until this point. Sailors on these semi-regular voyages back and forth between Cuba and the colonies in Darien had sighted people and buildings on the shores of southeast Yucatan for some time. And there were geographic and other features that suggested it wasn't just another island. And so by 1517, Diego Velasquez started to get serious about expansion into the Yucatan and beyond, and he decided to do so carefully and systematically. As we alluded to earlier, he lined up not just one, but multiple successive expeditions, each with slightly more lofty objectives. The first one was commanded by Francisco Hernández de Córdoba, and it was charged with conducting a detailed survey of the Yucatan coast, find out how far north it went, and to make contact with any people they encountered and, most importantly, report back. Based on what he reported, Diego Velázquez would outfit the next expedition with more ambitious goals in mind, and then the one after that, and after that, until he was sure he could safely and successfully establish a colony. But most importantly, all of these expeditions were under his legal authority because he was determined that no one would do to him what he had done to Spanish authorities when he conquered Cuba and declared himself governor. The first expedition under Hernández de Córdoba left Cuba in February of 1517. The three ships headed west and then north and soon rounded the northern tip of the Yucatán Peninsula for the first time. They continued southwest down the western side of the Yucatán Peninsula, scouting what were Mayan cities the whole way. They would go ashore periodically to engage with the Mayans and forage for water and supplies, and for the most part, these encounters with the Mayans were mostly friendly, until, while out on one of these forays, Hernández de Córdoba sniffed out an ambush. He and his men easily fought their way out of it and back to their ships, but the warning signs were now flashing bright, bright red. On another one of these trips to the shore, two Mayans came back with them. The way the Spanish describe it, they make it sound like a kind of diplomatic exchange whereby the Mayans would act as tour guides and translators to the best of their abilities, but it's quite possible that they were captured and forced into duty. They were eventually taken back to Cuba with the Spaniards and were baptized as Melcor and Julián, they would also play roles on subsequent expeditions as well. As Hernández de Córdoba's expedition continued down the coast, they were mirrored by hostile forces and couldn't safely go ashore and resupply anymore. Soon they ran out of water. They finally got desperate enough and landed late in the day in a place that seemed secure, but they found little water. They decided to spend the night on land, resumed their search close to daybreak, fill their containers with water, and return to their ships without being noticed. But when daylight finally came, they realized they were surrounded and outnumbered. The Mayan weapons weren't all that effective against the steel and the armor of the Spaniards, but they kept throwing more and more men into the battle, and Hernández de Córdoba quickly realized he was in trouble. By the time he and his men fought their way out of the attack and back to their boats, they had lost about 50 men over half of the total force of the expedition. Hernández de Córdoba himself was also seriously wounded, and to add insult to injury, the winds that carried them away from Yucatán took them to Florida, where they were finally able to resupply, 
but more men died of their wounds or from lack of water in the coming days. Hernandez de Cordova would make it back to Havana to deliver his report, but he would die a few days later, succumbing to his wounds and weeks of dehydration at sea. Rather than any sense of defeat or deterrence, however, the failure of Hernandez de Cordova confirmed Velasquez's wildest dreams. The Taino and the Carib peoples they encountered on the islands were really just primitive tribes wearing little more than loincloths, living in huts and limited to subsistence agriculture for survival. What Hernandez de Cordova described was something else entirely. Cities with stone pyramids, boats with both oars and sails coming in and out of ports, and people wearing jewelry and colorful clothes and markets with produce and crafts and evidence of basic industries, and perhaps most importantly, there was gold. Not a lot, but more than enough to suggest that it was in circulation. They brought back small quantities of gold jewelry, and it's been recorded that they saw idols and temples that were made of metal alloys that they believed contained at least some gold. And this was all the proof Velasquez needed. He quickly finalized his plans for a follow-up expedition in 1518 and appointed his nephew, Juan de Grijalva, to lead it. His expedition was better equipped and armed, but the goal, again, was limited to reconnaissance, contact, and power projection. Under no circumstances was Grijalva supposed to invade or set up a colony or anything like that. Grijalva departed in April of that year, and almost immediately, Velázquez de Cuellar began planning a third, much more ambitious expedition for 1519. He just needed to find the right person to lead it. So this is the state of play in the Spanish colonies on the eve of their encounter with the Aztecs. Castile and Aragon are the dominant powers in Europe and beginning to realize the potential for empire in the New World. On the ground in that New World... Diego Velázquez de Cuellar is the most powerful figure with control of all future expansion plans, at least for now. And soldiers, entrepreneurs, and other adventurers are arriving from all over Castile and Aragon and other parts of Europe as well to seek their fortunes. And though Hernán Cortés sits outside Velázquez's inner circle for the moment, he's about to get the chance to redeem himself. Diego Velázquez has no idea, however, that redemption is the last thing on Cortez's mind. Episode 6 will be out soon. <laughs>